Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. We are your hosts. Gabe, a wine professional working with wine and spirits education. And I'm Michael, a general enthusiast of all things craft, as well as somebody who's had some experience in the wine industry on the sales and wine growing end. So today we are going to be kind of continuing our theme from our last episode. Mm -hmm. uh, also, as we're kind of approaching summer, we think that this is something that is very useful and often very misunderstood, as was evidenced by our research into all of this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you, Gabe, uh, was earlier complaining about uh, quite a bit in, in the searching and research for this yeah um, what were some of the things that you were finding that were particularly frustrating about this topic well let's state the topic first so we are talking about sweet wines and dessert wines and the differences between these two things because they are not the same thing it's kind of one of these all these thumbs are fingers but not all these fingers are thumbs thing precisely because sweet can be an adjective but in yeah. this case it is a name yeah, so what Michael's referencing in my frustrations is uh, a lot of publications, even some of the more notable ones, seem to not make the distinction here that we believe should be made because these wines are used for different things. They are paired with different foods. Dessert wines have their name for a reason. They are paired with desserts. Not all sweet wines, though, are going to pair with dessert. That's just not how it always works. Some of them can, absolutely. But in general, there are some pretty major distinctions, which we'll be getting into in this episode. Yeah, and like this is because of their structural components, which have unique qualities, which are caused by unique fermentation practices. This is a kind of a younger thing, and that's why we think it's so important for us to distinguish the usage of sweet wines as opposed to dessert wines now, when you say younger separate. thing, you're referring oh. to... Uh, dessert wines in general haven't been around as long as sweet wine in general because gotcha. the first wines were just sweet. Yeah. It was just a method of preservation. And also for the, yeah. the sweet wines of the past, sometimes yeast can struggle to fully ferment to a full dry wine if they're not industrial strains. And that mm -hmm. also explains some of the sweetness in ancient styles of wine. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, there are so many reasons that are technological, even leading up to the development of dessert wines, mm -hmm. that kind of explain, through the combination of technology and culture, why it became a thing. Yeah. But before we get into all of that, just so that we're able to kind of keep up with each other in the conversation, us, the hosts, and you, the listener, we wanted to establish some nomenclature mm -hmm. for sweetness in general, because... A lot of that can be misunderstood if we don't approach it from how the industry is defining this. Precisely. So, Gabe, if you would please run us through some descriptive terms of how sweetness is measured as a flavor, mm -hmm. as opposed to grams per liter, because it is <laughs> sugar is, you know, going to be measured in grams per liter, but yeah. that's not Chem always apparent in the flavor. Yeah. From the chemistry perspective, you are measuring your residual sugar, which is the term for the sugar left in a wine after fermentation in grams per liter. Some people do make their sweetness scales based off of grams per liter, but here for our purposes, it is the perceived sweetness because other 
structural components of the wine can influence that scale and make it a little bit more of a spectrum than I think some people would like it to be. Yeah, which we got into a little bit in our last episode when we were talking about how to pair just wines in general. Uh, which if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, please do take a listen before you even finish this episode, because it will make understanding what we're talking about a lot easier mm-hmm. when you kind of have a, a more sensory chemical explanation for why things are important inside of the structure of a wine. Exactly. So to get into our sweetness scale, and I do want to make a little bit of a caveat before I even give you the scale, that caveat being that... In certain contexts, this scale will not apply. So sparkling wines, for example, tend to have their own designated sweetness scale. This can also vary across regions and countries. For example, Italian wines tend to have different names for all of these things because they speak Italian. But for our purposes here, this is a very um, U.S. consumer-centric scale. That is the primary demographic that we work with, so that is what we are catering this scale to yeah whereas we were saying that we don't want to use the sweet and sweet wine in order to uh be an adjective of the wine we're actually doing the opposite here these are the adjectives that we are using in exactly. order to describe sweet so let's get into it after all that hullabaloo yeah <laughs> get- all of that you now have so much context did you read the foreword you have now exactly <laughs> So we start off with bone dry. Bone dry is where there is no residual sugar present in this wine at all. We move up from bone dry to dry. This is where there is no perceptible residual sugar, but some might be present. Off dry is kind of where our scale for the purposes of this episode starts. So off dry is when there is a small amount of perceptible residual sugar in the wine. So if you've ever had a wine where there is just like a touch of sweetness, but you wouldn't necessarily call it like a sweet wine per se, that's off dry. Then we get into medium dry slash semi-sweet. These are used interchangeably by a lot of people. This is a perceptibly sweet wine or a very noticeably sweet wine. This is a wine you would probably your first instance would be to call it a sweet wine. We then move up to medium sweet, where this is a pretty sweet wine. This is solidly in the sweet camp. There is more perceptible residual sugar than a medium dry wine, but it's still not sweet enough to pair with desserts. Fully sweet wines, or just sweet wines, is where we get into this is now sweet enough to pair with dessert. As a side note, I know I said for some of these other levels, you might call a medium dry wine a sweet wine that's more of a colloquial understanding of sweetness that i'm referring to in that context again this level sweet is where we get into dessert wine territory there is one additional level that you might see this is something that was taught to me through my certifications And you might see it brought up occasionally, but it's less commonly used, at least here in the States, and that is lusciously sweet. Lusciously sweet wines are pretty much always going to be some form of dessert wine. And this is where the amount of residual sugar in the wine is so abundant that it begins to not only impact the flavor, but also very noticeably starts to impact the viscosity of that wine. Yeah, so the body is going to increase. It's going to start getting kind of like 
syrupy in some cases, which mm-hmm. is my cue to get out of there. Yeah. But because of some other structural elements that are going to be there, it's typically going to be balanced out once it gets to this level of sweetness. So it's not going to be cloying. Exactly. So something to note about body increasing with this sweetness, sugar will increase the body of really any wine. So if you go on this scale of sweetness, in theory, you should start seeing a noticeable increase of body with each step of the rung of this ladder anyway mm-hmm. um, but luscious just kind of goes that extra step where you, like you said it starts to get into what people might call syrupy or even cloying sometimes territory depending on the wine a lot of times these wines that are made to be so 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 sweet also have to have a lot of acid to counterbalance that but we'll get into that here in a second yeah so for our purposes for this episode Sweet wines, quote unquote, in the colloquial term, are going to start at the off dry. That is where perceptible sugar starts. Dessert wines, again, begin at sweet and up to luscious. And this is a very important distinction because this will greatly impact how they are used. Yeah. So if you can think of like luscious, even as where you have gone from describing things from perception to also including its structural elements Mm -hmm. because it is so abundant that it is affecting its structural elements and this is again kind of giving you that cut off of use that cut off of where we're going from one to the other yeah so the usage for a just regular run-of-the-mill sweet wine is usually going to be something along the lines of as michael said we're approaching summer so a lot of people will drink Sweeter styles of wine in the summer. Sweet rosé is a really common one. Yeah, You can um, have this outside like you're good. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's refreshing. Well, hopefully it's refreshing. It's not too sugary. You're not requiring anybody to acquire the taste of dry wine if you get it. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a safe option also. Yeah, if you're drinking it on its own. Uh, It can also be a good aperitif if you are doing like a hosting event. So something, again, just kind of refreshing, sweet enough to have some character on its own, but maybe not enough to interfere with the food that will follow it. And it can also be used actually as uh, a pairing for some meals. Not all meals, obviously, and not all sweet wines, but Mm -hmm. you can have it with meat. You can have it with some other things if that's your preference. And particularly spicy foods are going to be where you are looking to pair sweeter styles of wine. Yeah, it's going to be such a boon for you if you have some wings that you're not quite sure you can handle. If you have a sweet wine on hand, Mm -hmm. it's going to do some amazing stuff, especially if it has some decent acid as well. Exactly. Yeah. And again, listen to our previous episode on wine pairing to kind of understand the more uh, chemistry elements at play in that pairing option. But then we also get into the production kind of. So Mm -hmm. what are we thinking as far as sweet wines? Because there's a huge difference in the why, but that also affects the how. Yeah. So kind of the drawback, at least here in the United States, for quote unquote sweet wines is they can vary so widely in their quality. And I mean that on quite literally a wine making level. A lot of high volume brands make very cheap sweet wines for the U.S. market. White Zinfandel is 
The Ur example of this, White Zinfandel, probably would not exist were it not for the U.S. market. The United States tends to like sweeter wines in general. Most other places in the world, they do not like sweet wines like we do. Yep, sugar gives you the feel-goods, and we love the feel-goods. We do love the feel-goods. And that can lead to some not-so-great production methods that are used for these styles of wine. But I want to touch on dessert wines a little bit uh, for pairing options before we really fully get into that. Just know that our predilection towards that literally is the reason why we had such a bias against us once we started trying to create wines that were more prestigious, more dry styles, more old world styles. Yeah, yeah, especially here in Virginia, actually. And one more point that actually gets us into dessert wines is that sweet wines are normally much more affordable because of the cheaper production methods than dessert wines are. So that is a consideration to make, again, if you're hosting an event. Just know that there is normally a price differential there. So normally, uh, your sweet wines, it's just more casual all Mm -hmm. around. It's a casual drink with casual demands on your palate and a casual demand on your wallet. Yes. And with very specific pairing options for food as Mm -hmm. well. Now, dessert wines, on the other hand... Yes. So as we said earlier in the episode, these were named after their use, which is as a digestive small note that we were talking about before recording is I have said desertif before on the podcast. And both of us thought we had heard that term before, but turns out we couldn't find it anywhere online, at least. I am so sure I've heard it from like... I I swear I have as well, but everyone says digestif online. And I have heard digestive as well, so that probably is the correct term. Probably but... is. And, like, somebody tried to, like, sight-read that from across a room during an import, and they were like, yeah, I'll take the, uh, <laughs> the, the dessert. Tea. Yeah. You know, and that's how that word became a thing. Yeah. And, and so, for you, the listener, we're issuing a correction. It is digestive from now on for our purposes. If you don't know what a digestif is or even a aperitif, uh, aperitifs are a drink that is drunk before a meal. A digestif is a drink that is drunk after a meal. So dessert wines are often that latter use, uh, a digestif. They are often paired with dessert as yeah. well. There so, go the name, dessert wine. Yeah, and this is a lot to do with when this became a thing. Like I talked about a little bit earlier, this is a young practice creating dessert wines dessert is not a descriptor it's an instruction yeah so we didn't really have this development until a couple of things happened we had white refined sugar become a thing that was available to the public and it was being distributed but we also had the proliferation of distilling technology Mm -hmm. so we had both of those kind of come together along with all of these kind of historically unique spots across the world where you had wines that just there was one thing missing from them. Yeah. And so that's why we ended up having it. And at the same time, culturally, there was a focus put on when you were supposed to have this, when you were supposed to have that. So uh, the need for wines that could be paired with desserts that had white refined sugar used in order to give them more richness, in order to give them more sweetness, 
was in demand. Yeah. They needed something with specific and strategic structural components that could be a thing for this, which is, again, why we were like, this is a very important distinction. Yeah. And again, not a descriptor. It's an instruction. I mean, it's kind of a descriptor, too. But yeah, it's it's mainly an instruction. Yeah, well, it has the proper noun designation for a reason. Yeah, I mean, you can you can call it a descriptor because you're describing the the dessert. You know, it's like that's the plate, but it's what also, is in a name? What is in a name? But I, I make a that Madeira dis- by any other name would smell as nutty and toffee like. Don't bring up Madeira right now. I miss her. <laughs> as do I. As, yeah. as do I. Madeira is so good and. But uh, I make that distinction just so that you know how to kind of think about pairing going forward. Exactly. And going back to our sweetness scale, the reason why these pair better than like um, an off dry Riesling from Germany with chocolate cake is, yes, even though there is sugar in that off dry Riesling, the cake is just going to completely overpower it. You need something that is at minimum the same level of sweetness perceptively as that chocolate cake, preferably sweeter because sweet foods will diminish the perception of sweetness in the wine. Yeah. And this had never been a thing before. Like you had confections now. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we needed this to happen. Yes. So dessert wines have a couple of distinguishing factors that really do separate them from regular wines. We'll get into that more with sweetening methods, but a couple of notes to make on the onset before we fully jump into that is many dessert wines are fortified, which means that they are going to have a much higher alcohol percentage than regular sweet wines. This is something that I'm just saying so that you can know, again, if you're hosting and you're worried about people being able to drive home at the end of the evening, Maybe don't give them a ton of 20% ABV port. (laughs) Or also, talking about that hot weather again, you want to make sure that your alcohol percentage is lower if you have people out in the heat, especially if it's for a longer period of time, which it often is if you're having like a picnic or some sort of gathering. Yeah, and there are certain styles of dessert wines that are much lower on the alcohol percentage spectrum just because of how these wines naturally uh, ferment. But again, we'll get into that here in a second. One last point before we fully get into that, though, is that dessert wines, and this is actually a good segue into production methods, are normally at least of a very good quality because of the much more intensive methods, both from technicality and from labor that are required to make them in the first place. Yeah, and this is one thing that kind of brought up a really interesting distinction for me at the very least. It's not true for every single one that you are going to encounter, but each one of the dessert wines that we're going to be talking about typically has a home. Mm -hmm. It has a place of origin, and sometimes, actually very frequently, that is a designation of origin. Yes. So there's also going to be some laws that are regulating that quality Mm -hmm. and ensuring that for the consumer. And this also explains that price jump that we talked about earlier and why these wines often are more expensive than your off-dry Riesling again. There's a lot of investment that goes into these dessert wines. Yes. So... We've been hyping it up for a while. What are our sweetening methods? Oh, I don't know. 
So. <laughs> well, good thing I do then. <laughs> Not that format of a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that 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 would get quite annoying quite quick. I don't know. Why don't you tell me, Gabe? Why don't you tell me, Gabe? Why don't you tell me? We're just turning into a variety show from the 70s. Oh my god. No, don't get that look on your face. We're not transitioning into that. No, I, I'm putting my foot down. Absolutely not. <laughs> so let us start with our probably uh, maybe not most common, but definitely. Well, actually, it might be the most common given the high volume brands tend to go with this route. Uh, that is post fermentation sweetening. This can be done with regular sugar. That is really, really bottom shelf method of doing it. What you'll more commonly see is grape must, which is pressed grape juice that is, you know, just extracted from the grapes before the fermentation starts. That is left unfermented being added back in after the fermentation ends because there's still sugar in that grape juice and that will give you the sugar in the wine. There's also what is called RCGM, or Rectified Concentrated Grape Must, which is just that grape juice, but obviously concentrated. It's a concentrate, kind of like uh, those Minute made orange juice concentrates that you freeze and plop in a pitcher of water. Think of it like that. These are normally, as I said, the lower quality ways of getting a sweet wine. These are what a lot of your high volume producers who make sweet styles of wine are going to do to get those wines to sweetness. One big exception to this, though, is Germany. In Germany, for some of their wines, it is legal to add that unfermented grape juice, sometimes RCGM, back into a wine to sweeten it post-fermentation. When you have these wines, though, Normally, they are of at least a decent quality because the producers are wanting to, you know, give you a a, a good product. Yeah. Um, and in Germany, the reason why they will do this is since Germany has a cooler climate, sometimes their wines can end up a little harsh and sweetness can kind of help mellow out, particularly some really austere acid that might be at play in that wine. So... Just know that for Germany, sweet wines that are made in this method are not to be confused with um, barefoot Riesling, for example. Yeah. And you would also assume that probably the way that they are making that RCGM is probably going to be a, a little bit more well-maintained, a little bit yeah. better thought out, maybe. And, and normally, it is just the unfermented grape juice, not the RCGM that they are using. It's yeah. just It's kept back as a portion of the wine not allowed to ferment and then added back in after fermentation so it's all still the same juice and everything from the same vineyards and all that fun stuff then we also have which is a a better way to handle having residual sugar in your wine stopping a fermentation before it is completed now if you are not familiar with how fermentations work the fermentation process is essentially the converting via yeast of sugar into alcohol. So if you stop the yeast from fermenting in the middle of that fermentation, you will have some alcohol, but you will also still have remaining sugars. So there's a couple ways you can do this. One of these ways is to cool down the fermenting wine to a temperature where the yeast will go dormant. 
and then can be filtered out. So you do need to have access to temperature-controlled vessels to be able to do yeah. this in the first place. This is something that normally will end in an off-dry to medium-sweet style of wine. We also can dose the wine with SO2 or sulfur dioxide. This will kill the yeast instead of having them go dormant. And then again, you have to filter them out. And this gives you a little bit more control of the immediacy of stopping that fermentation. Yeah, because the thing is that the yeast itself will generate heat as it's going through this whole process. So cooling down those fermentation tanks does take a second, especially if it's a larger tank. Exactly. This stuff, it's, it's in there. Everything dies. And this uh, dosing with sulfur method will get you normally within that same range as the cooling method of your off-dry to medium-sweet wines. Then we step into the method that is commonly used for many dessert wines, which is fortification. That's the big one. Yes. This is the process of adding a spirit to a fermenting wine to stop the fermentation. Yeast cannot live in a very high alcohol environment. That is part of why wines in the olden days would be sweet wines is because the yeast could not survive once alcohol got to a high enough concentration. Yeah, we had to actually develop yeasts that could stand up to itself. Yes. Which is one of the reasons why a special little word for you, word of the day or, or term of the day, it is a self-terminating organism. Yes. So... Adding this spirit normally to around the 20% range, that's kind of a good middle of the range that you find in fortified wines, will stop that fermentation early, early enough to where there's still a very significant amount of sugar left in the wine. And this is normally going to be done with either a neutral spirit or brandy of some kind. Brandy is very commonly used since that is a grape spirit. And that's why this happened to be the one that came out during the proliferation of distilling. Yeah. Big surprise. Along the lines of being a self-terminating organism, we also have the method where for sweet wines that are made from very concentrated grapes, and we're going to get into how you concentrate these grapes here next, the yeast will actually die off naturally because yeast also cannot survive in a too sugar-heavy environment, at least not for very long. So some of these wines that have the concentrated sugars might only get up to sometimes like 5% ABV before the yeast just start dying off. So these can be very low alcohol wines, although normally they are going to be in your lower percentile, like 10-11% range is also common for some of these styles of wine, depending again on how much sugar is in that solution when the fermentation starts. It just reminds me of that scene from Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs where like ice cream falls from the sky <laughs> and like everybody's playing in it, but then everybody, don't they like get sick? I something? think they get sick. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. It's just the yeast get overwhelmed with, with how much sugar is there. So how do we get though these concentrated grapes that are going to inhibit the yeast being active? This and aging is probably the area of the most variance within the dessert wines. Yeah. And it's also the area that is the most interesting to me. Yeah. So grapes are affected by all sorts of molds and fungi. We've talked about it a lot, especially in our natural wines episode, just about how much care has to be taken 
in order to keep things from attacking the vines and developing on them, growing on them, and killing them. Yeah. Now, what we are talking about for our dessert wines, though, is a very specific mold called noble rot. Yes, or Botrytis cinerea. Yes. It grows on the skin of the grapes, and it pierces the grapes with these little tiny filaments. This leaves these little holes, these little microscopic holes in the grape skins. Growing conditions have to be quite ideal for this to not just completely rot the grapes away, but if you have humid or moist mornings with dry afternoons, that will lead to during the day when, you know, it's more dry and the sun is beating down on the grapes, evaporation of water from the berries themselves, which will then lead the grapes to raisinate a little bit and therefore concentrate the sugars. This leads to, when you press the grapes, a much, much higher sugar concentration in that wine. Also, the mold itself imparts its own flavor into the wine. It's often described as kind of like orange marmalade. I would also add in your sweet spices, so kind of like your cloves, your nutmegs, those sweeter profile spices. Uh, Ginger is another one that I I will commonly detect in botrytized wines. Yeah, this is a, a really kind of fascinating thing, and I kind of wonder how they discovered this. Like if one year... They were just <laughs> let's just throw there. in the bad grapes too. Yeah, like they were sitting there because these conditions are very specific. You have to have a combination of like warm, dry summers followed by cool, humid autumns. It has to have like some moderate rainfall and then fog. It is so crazy, and and you normally need a body of water next to your vineyard for that. Exactly. Also, not all grape varieties are as susceptible. You need things that have a certain level of susceptibility like Sauvignon Blanc or Semillon or several others that are more uh, receptive, Yeah, one could say. Then we have freezing your grapes to concentrate the sugars. This is going to make your ice wines, if the name didn't tip you off. So this is where the grapes are basically left to freeze on the vines. And you have to, again, have very specific climate conditions for this to happen. These wines are normally done in places like Germany and Canada and the Finger Lakes region, where you get a sudden onset of very cold weather in the winter. And you also have to have it be dry enough during the autumn to where the grapes don't rot off the vine before that winter comes. Yeah, it's like you're having to balance it not freezing before the time that you harvest it. You have to have it not rot. And also, you have to have people who are willing to go out with you and harvest in the middle of the night. When it gets to, I think I saw 17.6 Fahrenheit. I don't know the exact temperatures. Yeah, it gets super cold. But basically, how this serves as concentrating grape sugars is that when the grapes are crushed, because the grapes are frozen, that water is in ice crystals. But the sugar juice part of the grapes can still run off. But it is incredibly concentrated because so much of that water stays behind with the grape skins and whatnot. And then you ferment that very sugary, concentrated juice. Then we have drying the grapes. Now, there are two overarching methods for this. There are many subheaders that I could put here that I'm not going to just for sake of the brevity of this episode. But The two camps that I will list here are going to be drying the grapes on the vine after they are fully ripened. So these will normally be labeled as like a late harvest style of wine in many places. This is 
as I just described, the grapes ripen and you have a climate where the autumn is not super wet. So the grapes can just afford to hang on that vine for a while and they'll start to raisinate a little bit. And then you pick the grapes and then you make the wine from that. Something to note is that these might not go into fully dessert styles of wine, but normally you will have at least a medium sweet wine from this style. The other drying method. Huh? That... Don't you dare. I had to get you once. Don't you dare. I had to get you once. You got me last Shorzy, time. Shorzy, get out. <laughs> you got me last time. That's fair. That's yeah, fair. Yeah. Okay. So back on track, though. The other drying method that we have is picking the grapes when they are fully ripe, not letting them dry on the vine, but instead letting them dry uh, on so many different methods. Straw mats. Some people will hang the full bunches in a shed and allow them to dry that way. But basically, you're taking them off the vine for them to dry somewhere. And that will concentrate the sugars, basically start to make raisins, but you don't let them fully raisinate. And then you put them in the fermentation yeah. vessel. These are very common in your like passito methods of winemaking in Italy, for example. Uh, and it's as simple as it sounds like it's just the sun or air exposure exactly. over time. So just to reiterate before we get into notable mentions from these two categories, the post-fermentation sweetening and stopping the fermentation before completion are going to be the main methods you get for just regular everyday sweet wines. These more elaborate methods such as fortification, the freezing, the noble rot, and the drying of the grapes those are going to be your dessert wines. Sometimes there is some crossover between these categories, but that is a good general rule to look at when you are looking at sweet wine versus dessert wine. Yeah. And a lot of this also is uh, cultural heritage and tradition for dessert wines, because again, these more labor-intensive practices were discovered and refined over time in specific regions of the world. But the other thing uh, is that it needs to be wines that have a lot of acid content. Mm-hmm. These need to be things that even when left on the vine to get as ripe as possible, still have enough acid content to be able to cut through that sweetness. Yeah, or else you will end up with just like syrup. Yeah, and even in the in the case of like Botrytis, the botrytis increases the amount of acid. They still need to have stuff that is producing a lot of acid to begin with as a varietal in yeah. order to structurally be capable of sustaining the sweetness as a flavor profile. Exactly. Whereas a lot of sweet wines, on the other hand, it'll pretty much be a, a kind of a handful of specific types of grapes, but there's not really a limitation as to where it's going to be grown. There's no regulation as to the quality or the yields. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're adding sugar into that wine yeah. in the form of either just regular sugar or, you know, RCGM or whatever, there's so much less of the climate that needs to happen to make conditions right for that wine to be sweet. Precisely. That's just man made intervention at that point. Which allows for you to also look at exploring dessert wines from a more cultural perspective. Sure, mm-hmm. you can look at sweet wines and you know there might be a, an interesting history but some of these honorable mentions that we're about to get into have such cool foundations and reasons as to why they exist and what that did for the flavor 
It's mm-hmm. just a, it's a different animal. I do want to make a little bit of a caveat to what you just said, though, mm. because I don't want to give the impression that all sweet wines are necessarily uh, not culturally significant because there are mm-hmm. sweet styles of wine that are not dessert wines. And some of them are on my list here that do have a very long history in the region mm-hmm. of being produced. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm definitely also not trying to say that somehow that uh, dessert wines are better yeah in general again they are different wines for different purposes different wines different purposes um and also it could be something that you really enjoy and also really enjoy learning about exactly um like i was when i learned about uh the history of bug juice and (laughs) and the specific cultural um divergency that it represented for the specific family where it came from yeah so actually that is a very funny coincidence because my first notable sweet wine, not dessert wine, so these are my notable sweet wines, is Moscato slash Moscato Dosti. Is it surprising to you that I actually hadn't gotten that far down in your notes yet? Look at fate. Look at serendipity. Look at, look at, just yeah. smiling upon us today. Convergence. <laughs> Harmony. Yeah, so Moscato, Moscato Dosti, not normally my personal favorite. I do like that bug juice that Michael just mentioned. But this is one that is very common that most people that enjoy sweet wines will gravitate towards, in my experience. We also have exported German Rieslings. And I say exported because Germany likes to keep a lot of their dry wines in the market within the country. And they export a lot of their sweeter styles of wine to particularly the United States because, again, we have a market for that here. What? Yeah. You mean that they're targeting us because of our sweet tooth? Oh, hey, hey, make some money. A lot of money. So And sad. a lot of these wines are going to be of decent quality because most German producers do care about their reputation. You can get some dry wines from these guys, and it is oh, becoming yeah, a bit more popular. So mm-hmm. more and more are starting to come over from, from over the pond. So thank you, Germany, for that. But if you are looking for sweet wines, this is a good place to ask about at least. Then we have our late harvest slash Vindage Tardive, and I am hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, also labeled as VT from Alsace. Don't give me that look, Michael. I forgot I'm to look it up. you that look. I forgot to look it up it's before part of the responsibilities. We have a <laughs> duty. Mean, I meant to. I'm very sorry to any French listeners that stumble across this. But uh, so these wines from Alsace, these are made in that, you know, drying on the vine style. And these normally, from my experience, will fall into kind of your medium sweet category. But these can be sweet enough to also be dessert wines as well. We have Lambrusco, and if you just recoiled in horror from me saying Lambrusco... That's just because of our market, okay, guys? So, a lot of really bad Lambrusco got on the market in the 70s. However, Lambrusco has really upped the quality, not quite rehabilitated their reputation yet, but they are on the track to do so, and there are some very good Lambruscos on the market now. If you have a local wine shop, please ask them about it. If they carry it, hopefully they're carrying something that is actually worth drinking. You know, a lot of people that came to the wine shop, they would often think that Lambrusco was a a brand name because there's typically only one actual Mm -hmm. producer that even makes it. Uh, That has changed. Yeah. No, Uh, I mean like that people know because it's also my my elderly customers that were asking for it. Yeah, because again, in the 70s, Mm. we had 
producers that got very big and very low quality. But yeah. moving on from that, though, uh, check out Lambrusco. I, I do. I promise you, it does deserve a reevaluation in the modern market. Oh, and it's perfect for a picnic, especially if you have mm-hmm. some kind of like it can stand up to some high acid. Yeah. So if you have a picnic and you have any sort of like tomato based anything or anything like that, I would say go for it. Yeah. Personal note for me for notable sweet wines is going to be off dry or sweeter Chenin Blanc from the Loire Valley. I am not a sweet wine drinker normally, but I love these wines. Particularly check out Vouvray if you are curious about them. Vouvray Chenin Blanc is delicious. And yes, I will die on this hill. No, I I love Vouvray. Um, Vouvray. I don't know that the other V is pronounced. But I'm not sure on that because I also was learning from other salesmen and who knows where they were learning from. Yeah, I always so, heard Bouvray, so you know what? I'll 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 join you in this venture. Desertif. Desertif. <laughs> <laughs> but Bouvray is absolutely fantastic. They have a bunch of different price ranges as well, so you're not gonna have to break the bank in order to try their stuff. Yeah. So then we move on to unless you had anything else, the notable dessert wines. I don't really have any other uh, categories for sweet wines that I particularly like. You could try, I guess, a Sorbello uh, if you Mm -hmm. wanted, which is think Moscato di Asti if there is more of an emphasis on the texture of the bubbles for my bubbles lovers out there. Very big bubbles. The beads are very large. This is a very poppy drink, and it's typically going to have some sort of flavoring. My particular favorite not that I'm a big fan of Sorbello, would be when it's sweetened with elderflower. I would All say right. that that's, that's one, but we should move on to our dessert wine special mentions. Yes, and we will not spend too much time on these, I promise. We will fly through this list. We will fly through this list, Michael. Don't give me that look. Uh, it's, the, it's the lack of a look, the lack of eye contact that should really scare Yeah, those, you. those shifty eyes. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, probably the most famous example that most people will be familiar with, or well, two really, is Port, which comes from Portugal. There are several styles of this. We did an episode on this. If you really want to know, go listen to that. We also have our PX, or Pedro Jimenez, and Cream Sherries. Those are your sweet dessert styles of sherry. We also have a sherry episode. We have Michael's favorite, and probably, admittedly, my favorite as well, Madeira. How could it not be? Yeah. Uh, particularly your Boal and your Malvasia are going to be your sweeter styles of Madeira. These are also going to be very pricey, so just warning you. Uh, we also have a Madeira episode, if you want to listen to that. Sorry, I keep saying that, but we do have no, actually, episodes on all these. That is that is my personal recommendation. If you took the time to go and listen to the wine pairings episode before you did this one, this is your next episode. Please listen to this. Yeah. So then we move on to ice wine. Another expensive one. Uh, yeah, there are some cheaper ice wines, but that also normally comes from um, some cost-cutting measures where they might or might not be freezing those grapes manually before they make them into ice wine. So, yeah, but not to call anyone out here. <laughs> I need my grapes to be frozen by Father Winter, I'll have you know. I, I, that's the best way to make them and the natural way to make them. But yeah, so ice wines are another notable dessert wine. We also have our Noble Rot representatives, which is our Sauterne and our Tokai. Sauterne is probably going to be more accessible to more people. Tokai is fairly rare. And when you can find it, it is 
incredibly expensive. So Turn can also be incredibly expensive, but Tokai even more so. The fan base for both of these typically end up being collectors. Mm-hmm. They go after specific years. Yeah. They will travel across states. Exactly. Like this is this is a niche market. Yes, but these are incredible wines if you can get your hands on some. We also have our Passito wines from Italy. So if you remember, those are going to be those dried out on either mats or uh, dried out in a shed somewhere off the vine. We have our Vin du Nature from France. These are going to be fortified wines, very commonly from Muscat, but there are some, for example, from the Rhone Valley that are made from Grenache. This is a whole host kind of of subgenres of fortified wines from France, but they're all sweet dessert wines. And to finish this episode out, I am going to also say fortified Muscats from around the world because there are many of them. This is another one, though, that falls into the Tokai category of being very rare and very expensive, particularly like your Rutherglen fortified muscats from Australia, hundreds of dollars for a bottle, like at minimum, because they're just very rare. They age for decades sometimes. I'm sure they're delicious. I have never gotten my hands on one. I've never even seen one in person, Uh, but they are out there. If you're curious and you have a detective brain, maybe you can get your hands on some. Send us some, please, if you do. We will we will send you a bottle that is capable of holding like three, three point five ounces in order to send us that sample. I was thinking you were gonna say three bottles and I was about to be like, Yes, please. No, 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 no. You know that I'm I'm a people pleaser. I I don't I don't Well I'm not, so I'm gonna ask for the three bottles. Uh, So you'll okay, so I'm the reasonable one. Just do Mm -hmm. the the four ounce sample bottle and you'll be you'll be cool as a cucumber. A hero to me. And a passable no (laughs) i I kid i kid um yeah so those are our notable styles again we didn't really go into them for brevity's sake if you are curious about them particularly the ones where we mentioned that we have episodes on absolutely start investigating them we'll have to do full episodes because the thing is is with the dessert wines we can do full episodes on each of them i mean even on just lambrusco we could do a full episode oh absolutely so yeah Again, these are very wide, overarching genres of wine, and our purpose here is to tell you, and hopefully you understand more now, why they are used for different things. They are achieving different ends, and now you have some recommendations from each category that you can go out and try, as Michael said, particularly during the upcoming warm weather months. Yeah, and hopefully uh, we've sparked your curiosity to give these guys a try, especially trying them with these specific foods that they're meant to be with those Mm -hmm. nice luscious rich desserts for your dessert wines which you know like things pair we put the words together yes and then uh you can just have that nice aperitif with your sweet wines Mm -hmm. do let us know if you end up trying anything new over over the course of the next month or so as we're getting out of march and into april yes uh which also means that we have a special event coming up we do and that special event is April Fool's Day, which has a long and rich history in the wine world. No, it is April 7th, National <laughs> Beer Day. I was not I, I was going to do like a huh, April Fool's thing, but that would have been cheesy, which is why I did it. 
We would never do cheesy on this podcast. Not even once. (laughs) We Uh, have never done that. Yeah, that's those are actually just used up all of my lying points for the year. And it's only (laughs) the third month. Um, Oopsie. (laughs) Whoops. Um, (laughs) So National Beer Day is coming up. For those of you who do not know, in the U.S., we had a little thing called Prohibition. We have a full episode on that as well. We are referencing a lot of episodes today. Um, and its official end happened a little bit later, but before it did end, we had a special day, which is why we celebrate National Beer Day on April 7th. So we are going to be covering a beer topic of interest to us that we haven't covered here on the podcast before, and that is the Guinness Company. So yes. uh, Guinness beer has its own little rich history. It was actually really needed in the time it was developed. We're going to be getting into all of that in our upcoming episodes, so please do join us for that. And follow us at LaidBackLush on Instagram and Twitter to see things drop as they do. Yes, we will be hopefully able to give you some beer recommendations as well leading up to National Beer Day. Because we both enjoy partaking in a little beer here and there, especially as the celebration demands it. Yeah, you know, I've been known to have a brew or two. A brew or two? A brew or two. Oh, a brew or two. A brew or two. That would, uh, that's how the Guinness Company started. That's actually, uh, people just joking around about what they're going to name uh, their oh, their beer is exactly how a brewery is named in the Virginia area, just so you know. That's so real. Like, could I know you? you're I know you're saying that tongue-in-cheek, but that is so real. But look at my face. Yeah. Am I saying it tongue-in-cheek? Uh, Maybe like 50-50. I think I just channeled like 300 beer bros. You did, and I am terrified of all of them. (laughs) Yeah. No. uh, They're coming to tell me about how my taste in beer is not good because I don't like IPAs. Those aren't beard bros. Those are jabronis. Beer jabronis. The jocks of the beer world. We are so off the rails right now. Well, anyways, guys, as we return into sanity for your sake for at least the next minute, we appreciate you being here, uh, listening to our little podcast. Please do follow us again, and we will see you next time. Yes. Thanks for joining us, and cheers. Cheers.